You're now listening to episode 53 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hole and Thomas Costelli here today with Dave Zook, successful business owner and experienced real estate investor active in multifamily apartments, self-storage, and the ATM space. Dave has acquired more than $100 million worth of real estate since 2010 and has deployed over $90 million in investor capital in the ATM space, in which he's heavily invested himself. In this episode, we discuss investing in ATMs and shale oil, the tax benefits of each, investing in self-storage, the importance of tax planning, and much more. And without further ado, let's jump right into today's episode. Dave, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, so I was raised in a very entrepreneurial, business-friendly family, and we have a modular building business, a family business that uh, I run with my three brothers and my dad. And I got myself into, coming out of my teenage years, I saw my dad investing in real estate. And he invested in real estate in such a way that he uh, really just parked his extra capital that he was making from his businesses in real estate, farms, land, single-family homes. I watched him self-manage some of those single-family homes. And you know, I just told myself, I'm never going to be a real estate investor. I'm, I'm not going to go through this. I saw the good, bad, and the ugly. And uh, so I, I invested in businesses. I started several businesses and got to the point where uh, I was doing really well and got myself into a real tax situation. Um, I remember clearly the day, I remember while I was standing the day when I got the call from my CPA saying, you know, we, we took all of your deductions, you paid your quarterly, uh, you made your quarterly tax payments, but you still owe, you know, $373,422 in change, you know, in two days. And so that year, I paid almost half a million dollars in tax, right around a half a million. And um, I, you know, I was having a lot of fun with my businesses. I was, uh, you know, I was having so much fun, it didn't feel like work. But when I had to give half of my profits back to the government, uh, it wasn't so much fun anymore. And so I went on this search, and I went from not wanting any real estate to when I found out the real estate can be, specifically multifamily, can be a real tax shelter. Uh, that really piqued my interest, and I got uh, got into the multifamily business, bought a couple hundred units of my own, and uh, ended up running out of cash. There were still good deals in the marketplace. We had a really good broker. There was deals that just made a whole lot of sense. So I I went out and learned how to be a syndicator, and I raised the money for our next deal, and it sort of grew organically from there. So you invest in. A lot of different assets, right? You mentioned multifamily. And I know you also invest in ATM, self-storage, shale oil. So there's a lot of people know about multifamily and that's on all the podcasts. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about some of the other asset classes, like maybe the ATM machines. What sort of returns do they produce and uh, what attracts you to ATM investments? Well, pretty much any asset class that I invest in, most often it has some kind of a tax component to it. 
So, you know, back to my original story, taxes pretty near and dear to my heart because I had a, a real situation and still would if I wasn't being strategic. Uh, so when I look at an asset class today, unlike what I did years ago, uh, a long time ago, when I just look at the return, like I'm investing hundred grand, how much is it going to make me? How much is my return going to be? Now I look much deeper and, and one of the key components to that asset class is tax. I want to protect myself from a tax liability, getting right back to where I was. So looking at an ATM investment, you purchase the ATMs. Our team puts a package together. We'll go out and buy a large portfolio of of ATM locations, and then we'll place brand new machines in those locations, and we'll bring investors in to buy into that portfolio. So the way it looks is one unit is $104,000 and that gets you seven machines. So what happens is they buy the machines, they take the write-offs, they get to write the whole $104,000 off over five years. So most of the cash flow coming from that asset class is tax-free in those first five years. It's a seven-year contract and um, the investor will go in, the cash-on-cash return is 24.5%. But now that's not the number that you really want to pay attention to. The number that you really want to pay attention to is the one that includes the loss of value of your equipment over that seven-year period. So when you consider that, when you consider the loss of value of your equipment over seven years, you consider your tax impact and your cash flow, you're coming in an all-in internal rate of return of around 18.5%. Nice, nice. And because of that, you know, so I think ATM machines have to be five or seven year property. I think you just had mentioned. And at that point, you know, you can use 100% bonus depreciation actually and take 100% of the depreciation in the first year if that's what you wanted to do, or you can let out of that 100% bonus depreciation. Is that something you guys have considered? Or at this point, do you just let it depreciate over its, over its useful life? So we have, we have two different funds. One is, a fund where it's set up, where you purchase the ATMs, roll them into the fund. We send out K-1s. That fund is set up with a five-year depreciation schedule. And then we also put a fund together toward the end of the year, usually in November or December. That's a different fund. So we so we run two different funds. The, that fund is a bonus depreciation fund. So it'll do exactly what you said. You can get into that fund right toward the end of the year. You can take 100% bonus depreciation, write the whole thing off right at the end of the year. And it's really, we put that fund together for us, realized it was working really good. And then we rolled it out to our investors. So you get down to close to the end of the year and you realize you're going to have a tax problem. That's really a tax play. You can you can kick that can down the road. You can take 100% bonus depreciation and it's a beautiful thing. So the returns sound great. The tax benefits sound incredible. Why aren't more people investing in ATM machines? Very people know about this asset class as something that's even available. And one of the reasons is we're the only group that I know of that sort of plays in the middle. You've Okay, so on one side, you have the mom and pops who can normally handle up to about 100, between 100 and 200 machines. If you're in a, you know, in an MSA, good size MSA, and you get into the ATM business, you can normally, if you're kind of an entrepreneur and, you, and you're wanting to do this on your own, you can get out there and you can manage 100, 150, maybe up to 200 machines. And then you're capped. And then you, on the other side, you've got the big institutions like Cardtronics and some other ones that are you know billion-dollar companies. 
you know, public companies and, and you, and you got some players on that side. There's nobody else that I know of that takes an institutional product and breaks it down for individual investors. And that's really what we're going. I mean, we, we got some real depth on our team. We got guys, you know, total probably 80 to 100 years of ATM experience. And, and these guys are in the game. This is what they do. So to be able to, as an investor, come in and take part in an institutional type product like this is very unusual. I don't know if anybody else is doing it. And I'm in the space. So now if you're looking at an investor out on the street saying, why aren't they doing it? I'm in the space and I don't know anybody else that does this besides us. So say you did have somebody entrepreneurial and they wanted to go out and buy that 100, 200 machines over time. What are some of the biggest operational hurdles or expenses that they might be looking at? Well, I mean, it's it's sort of like somebody that goes out to buy, you know, they buy a 200 unit multifamily apartment and they want to manage it on their own. You got the active business on the one side. If that's what you want to do, and that's what you know how you want to spend your every waking hour of the day, that's how you want to spend your life. That's going to keep you real busy. You can be active, same as if you bought a two hundred unit apartment building. You want to manage that thing by yourself. It's going to keep you busy. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it, if you're a passive investor, you got a business, you got some other business interests. You're you're out there doing their thing. You know, a lot of people like to do this on the passive side. So one final question before we move on to the next one. I'll let Tom take the next question. <laughs> Does it bother you when people say ATM machine? Because <laughs> isn't that like the M in the ATM is machine, right? So that's like an ATM machine machine. <laughs> <laughs> I never even thought of that because that's the way everybody, you know, that's the kind of the way everybody says it. No, I never even thought of that. But yeah, that, that's a good point. Right. Well, that's my foray into the uh, the comedy scene. So Tom, you can... <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I'll just, I'll just add one more thing in there. You know, people say, you know, with all the new technologies coming out, Apple Pay, Google Wallet, credit card, Bitcoin, all that good stuff. What isn't ATM machines, isn't that sort of a dying... Thing that it'll be gone in five years. And the act, actually, the answer is no. That the use of cash, there's more cash in circulation today. In fact, cash use went up almost five percent last year. That's a huge number, and it's also a number that you know. I mean, we can tell looking across that portfolio that the use of cash is you know healthy. I mean, this is uh, an industry that's growing. And one of the reasons is if you understand that the user, the primary user of ATM machines, they're lower income folks. And that's, uh, unfortunately, that's one of the fastest growing demographics in the United States. Got it. Got it. So it seems like, you know, ATM machines aren't going anywhere. Uh, another thing that's probably not going anywhere anytime soon is oil and gas investments. So, you know, a lot of our clients, they ask us about, you know, what about oil and gas? Should we get into oil and gas? And I, I know you invest in shale oil. So would you be able to talk about a little bit about the shale oil business and how that works from an investment perspective? Well, look, I've, I've been an oil and gas investor since 2011. So I like oil and gas. One of the things everybody needs to be aware of going into an oil and gas play, a big thing, you know, a big thing to keep in mind is in order to be successful in that space, you've got to hit it right. You've got to get the timing right. Um, price volatility. I mean, I was, in, I was an oil and gas investor. I've I think I first got in when we were around 70, 65, $70. We had $65, $70 oil on there. All our performance and projections were built around, I think, a $70 oil price. But we went from $70 to $108 or $110. And we were having all kinds of fun. And then we went to $35. So 
you know, and, and we had some leverage. The company, I was a passive investor, the company that I invested in actually had to give the field back to the bank. And there was leverage. So I'll just tell you, when you have your model at $70 oil and oil drops down to 35, it's not going to be a whole lot of fun. So that's point number one. One of the things we've done is, yeah, we're invested in shale oil, but what we do is we produce shale oil and the product that we get the shale oil from is coal. So we control, our partners control over 500 million tons of coal and we can take that coal, we can put it into a patented distillation unit. We've got domestic and international patents on this unit. We can run the coal through that machine uh, at high heat. We can break it down. We can capture gases and oils from the coal. So a couple of things that are, that are going on there. Number one, we're controlling the cost on the front end going in. Number two, we've got fixed price contracts for the liquids and the oil that we're producing on the back end. Um, we do business with Exxon. We've got contracts. We have contracts for more oil than we can produce. So it's one of the ways that you can get the same tax benefits, actually better tax benefits. You guys will appreciate this as CPAs. You can get better tax benefits than you can in oil and gas investing. And so it's a way that you can get into the space. You can get the tax benefits. You can control your downside risk. Because look, two of the biggest risks in oil and gas investing is number one, your price volatility risk. And then number two is your drilling risk. You're actually taking two of the biggest risks out of the equation. We're selling our product at 162.50 a barrel. And we got fixed price contracts on it for the next, uh, I think, six years. So when, when people invest in this, there's different types of ways you get into it. You get into it as a general partner or a limited partner. How, how do you invest in this? And uh, what's the most common way uh, to get in this type of investment? Well, yeah, so good question. So most of the time, people are getting into this investment, high-paid professionals, people who've got W-2, good-paying, high-paying high W-2 jobs. Most of the people that come in are looking for a tax benefit. So when you put them into this deal, what we normally do is we offer a GP spot, which is what most people take. If you go and come in as a general partner, you can then take the tax benefits against your ordinary income. What we do then is we take 100% bonus depreciation in the first year. The following year, early in the year, in the first quarter, we then rule that investor into an LP position. So you're really getting the tax benefit in your first year, and then you rule into an LP position. It's really modeled a lot after the oil and gas space. That's how they do it. And I learned this stuff. Again, I was an oil and gas investor since 2011. So we modeled it after the oil and gas guys. No, it seems kind of like the best of both worlds here. So you, you, you yeah. get the tax benefits up front, and you take your risk off the table as a general partner by rolling it into an LP investment. Now you're only limited to the, the your investment principle. It's, it's really at the risk at the end of the day which I think is the concern of most people when you tell them, when I've talked to people about oil and gas investments, and I'm like, oh, you could take the GP position, but it's a high risk play. Most people start to back down. But I think some people out there will be able to tolerate that risk for that one year, knowing that they can get out into the LP side. So that's great. And it's really, not even, it's really not even a year. It takes us from start to finish, from the time an investor comes in to invest in this space, it takes us you know, six months to build that unit. So let's say you're an investor and you invest right now, this time of the year, where are we at here, June. So by the time we get that unit built and online and in, in production, it might be October, November. So now you got exposure for what, one or two months. 
you get into the new year, you take your tax benefits in 2019, 2020, you get into the new year, we really into an LP position. Now you've captured all your tax benefits and, and, and now you're an LP. It's awesome. It's awesome. So, you know, a lot of our clients, we often talk about pigs and pals, uh, passive income generators and passive activity losses. And, you know, as you talked about before, there's often a lot of high income W-2 earners who want to offset their W-2 income. And, you know, the shale oil is, is a way to do that. But oftentimes, like with the ATM machines, the self-storage, the multifamily, uh, if you're working a W-2 job, those are often passive losses. And those passive losses ultimately get suspended and carried forward indefinitely until they either sell one of their investments or they have passive income of other sorts. And we're often looking for those pigs, the passive income generators to help them offset that income. And I know that you've explored a lot of alternatives in the past. Has there been any alternatives that you've ever found that don't have like those huge tax benefits and actually generate that passive income? Most of your real assets, no, most of your real assets. I mean, look, there's, there's only a, a small number of things that you can do to offset ordinary income, as you guys know. I mean, you got land easements, you've got really the other things are energy related, whether it's solar or wind or oil and gas or coal or something like that. So there's a limited number of things that you can use to offset W-2 income, but this is one of them. One of the other things that we've really leveraged is the fact that you can take a depletion credit, anything you pull out of the ground, you can get a depletion credit. Now, in the coal space, that's 15% of the cost of the ore coming out of the ground. But one of the things that we learned, like if we call this a shale oil play, which it really is because we're really just using coal to get to the real end product that we're looking for, which is the shale oil, we call this a shale oil play. Now it becomes, you can take a 15 depletion tax credit against the price, the gross sales of the product that you're selling. That's like a 10x difference. So I guess my point is when you plan and when you're aware of these types of things and when you're aware of it from the tax side, you can create a big impact just by how you word the asset class, how you kind of structure the asset class and how you put it together for investors. And that is why it's very important to have a tax plan in place <laughs> or at least some sort of strategy so that you can piece this stuff together. Absolutely. Uh, any, any other investments that we haven't touched on yet today that you're into or looking into? Um, yeah. So we're, we're heavily involved in the self-storage space as well. And one of the reasons we got involved in the self-storage space was, I, I don't know what you guys think, but I think we're, I mean, I was just on, a, on an economic panel over the weekend and they asked, you know, what part of the cycle they believe, or I believe that we're in. And I said, well, certainly I think that we're, you know, from a one scale of one to 10, we're on the high side of the cycle, you know, and I, and I would say, you know, going by my gut or going by some things that I'm seeing and maybe an eight, maybe higher. Well, one of the things I've really studied in this asset class for the last couple of years, and one of the things I've found was and this is an asset class, a self-storage space is an asset class that historically has done really well in a recession or downturn or when companies are downsizing or people are downsizing their homes or moving into apartments. And you see the trend toward, you know, urban living or, or people moving in, you know, from the country moving into apartments um, it, you know, that all bodes well for the self storage space. So through that and through my studies, I just thought, you know what, this is a great time to get into the self storage space. 
It's an asset class that we can depend on if history is our friend. We can depend on that asset class being a very sustainable and, and a good working model in a time of recession or downturn. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. So well, let's say that we do have a recession or a downturn and uh, people have self-storage units. Is there any risk there of non-payment of the monthly bill to rent that self-storage unit? Or what does your research show along those lines? Well, I, yeah, there is risk. Uh, I think the risk is mitigated. I, you know, When you're looking at Joe Smith, who thinks enough of his stuff to take it to a self-storage facility, I mean, you're talking 90 bucks a month. Normally, you'll be able to find 90 bucks a month somewhere. And it's not like a huge financial obligation. And will he pay 90 bucks a month in order to keep his stuff stored? Uh, you know, most of the time, the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so, you know, it's, you're not talking about a huge financial obligation. It's normally something where people are willing to pay to, to keep their stuff. Huh. That's great insight. I love it. Thank you. you know, I mean, look, if, if you do the math, and you look at some of the stuff that's stored in these facilities and you think about, okay, you know, how long has this stuff been here? Whether it's whatever, two, three years, most of the time, the stuff that's in the unit isn't worth the total amount of rent that they paid to store the stuff. But, you know, hey, we don't make a lot of noise about that. If people want to store their stuff in there and, and uh, they keep paying their rent, uh, it's good for everyone. Love it. All right. So shifting gears a bit, we are an accounting and tax firm. So we are an accounting and tax podcast. Uh, I'd like to ask what your favorite tax strategy is or a tax strategy that you've received the biggest benefit from. Do you have one off the top of your head that you can talk about? Yeah, the new tax law that came through that allowed us to use bonus depreciation on new or used equipment. That was big. We've leveraged that a lot. In fact, I put, I mean, I'm, I'm a syndicator. I raise money for these deals that we do. And and I sent out a, a K1 to an investor who invested $100,000 into an apartment project with us and got a $91,000 tax deduction. I was like, this is a mistake. <laughs> I called my CPA and I was like, what is this? Like, this doesn't make any sense. And he said, oh, yeah, that's the new tax law. And so being able to leverage that, that's, that's been huge for us. And are you leveraging bonus depreciation across pretty much all asset classes that you're investing in at this point? Not all, but most. If I get down to the end of the year, if I get down to the last quarter and I see that I'm going to have a tax uh, you know, tax liability, yeah, I get to work. I, I want to get as much of that uh, in my portfolio as possible because I would much rather make an investment into an asset uh, that gives me the bonus depreciation than cut a check to the IRS. Do you find it's like a little easier to talk to investors about this or do they get more excited about the potential of the passive losses that they could receive? Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, the more educated I became over the years, the easier it was to pass that on. And, and the other thing is, the other thing that's happened is, you know, you get an investor, you talk to them about this stuff and you explain how it works and all that. And then you could tell that it's kind of going over their head. But then you get a call on April the 17th or 18th or 20th and they're saying, oh, my goodness, this stuff really works. And I was like, well, yeah, you know, I was telling you. And so when you when you sign here for our next deal, <laughs> right, when you when you uh, get investors that actually see how it works on paper and how it's impacted them from a tax perspective, then it, it you know, that, that that gets it flowing for sure. Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to switch gears to an accounting question now. So at various stages of your fund's growth, how did you handle the accounting? Were you ever like a do-it-yourself guy? Did you ever outsource it? Or did you just go straight to hiring an in-house staff? 
Well, yeah. So I have several businesses up here. Again, we have a, a manufacturing company that's a family business. And then I have a sales and marketing company uh, that I ended up selling a portion of it to my three brothers. But I've, I've always had uh, good people or I've for a long time, I've had good people around me, CPAs, CPA teams. And so I had for a while, I was when I was early on in my syndication career, I had a third party coming in to do a lot of my bookkeeping, a lot of the work. Uh, today, I have a CPA that's on staff. So he's on staff. He's the guy that if we do a deal with investors, the investors, you know, I make a contact, but then he's the guy that's doing, you know, the documents and making sure that everything's good on the legal side and, and making sure that, that everything's prepared. He doesn't do my actual tax work, but he prepares the tax work for my CPA firm who, who then does the K-1s and, and all the accounting. Got it. So that in-house CPA is essentially like controller CFO type of position? Yes. Nice. Okay. So before we go right into the last few questions here, I just wanted to ask, you know, how important is it to have those financials updated on a periodic basis when it comes to projecting your tax liability, knowing, you know, whether or not you should or shouldn't make one of these investments or whether or not you should take 100% bonus appreciation on one of your investments for the year? I'm talking to my CPA weekly, you know, not always about that, not always about my personal tax situation, but I've pretty, I've, I've, uh, I talk to him a lot. So I, I know where I'm at. Like we get down to the last quarter, we're talking about this kind of stuff and, and we're making sure that, you know, that I know where we're at and, and, you know, if there's a tax liability, we're going to you know get aggressive and do something about it because, you know, unlike what most people think that when you're successful and you're making a lot of money, you got to pay a lot of tax. It's not true at all. You really just need to have a plan and you need to know know the tax law and you really need to know what your government wants from you. And when you know those things and you can kind of put some things in place that's going to work in your favor, that's what it's all about. Because you can make a lot of money and not pay any tax legally. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And, you know, I just quote some things in there for our listeners. So there's two things, you know, you need to be talking to your CPA often. You need to understand where you are financially with your financial statements so you can understand what your tax liability will be for the year. And then that year-end tax planning, and I always tell all my clients that we work with here, contact us you know, for year-end tax planning because that's when you're going to know. That's when you have that final kind of few months to make a move, whether or not to invest more in your 401k or invest in an investment like one of these we discussed today, something along those lines. It's really important. But Dave, so what would be your favorite mobile app or piece of technology you're currently using in your business? You know, I'm not a real techie. But I can tell you, I use an app. It's called Easy Calculators. And, you know, I use that quite a lot. You know, I'll, I'll get in there and it tells you a lot about, well, it'll, it'll get into the financial numbers and stuff and you can do amortizations and stuff. That's probably the one I use the most. Awesome. That's Easy Calculator. I think I have that one on my phone, actually. I think I was using it a lot in college when I was taking all those classes and I had to do all those financial calculations all the time. You know, now we just use Excel and stuff. But I know if you're on the go and you're like you're talking to an investor, you're talking to a potential seller or something, you might need to be making those calculations. So if our listeners wanted to learn more about you or get in contact with you, what would be the best way to do so? They can reach out to me at info at therealassetinvestor.com. And our website is therealassetinvestor.com. The other thing, if they reach out to me and ask for a copy of my eight lessons learned as a syndicator for syndicators and their investors, I'm happy to send that to them. I got a copy that, uh, that I'll send to everyone that reaches out to us. Awesome. 
Awesome. It sounds like it's going to be a great learning experience. You know, it's always good to learn from other people's experience. So good to hear that you have something like that out there. Any final words of uh, advice, any final words of wisdom before we wrap up for today? Well, since this is a tax CPA or tax kind of themed show, I would just leave this with you. This, this quote stuck with me and it's changed the way that I think about tax. If you want to change your tax, you got to change your facts. So it just simply means that if you want to change the way you're being taxed, you got to change the way you're going business. You got to change the way you're investing. You got to change, you got to change your facts. So it is within your control. You know, I always thought, you know, it was somebody else's fault. I always thought it was, you know, legislation or Democrats or Republicans, or it was external forces that were making me pay this tax. And I thought I was a victim when I realized that it was within my control. And really the only reason I was paying tax was it was a fine from the government telling me I'm not doing what they wanted me to do. So it is within your control. Get your mind around it. And there's ways that you can make Tons of money without paying any tax legally in the United States. Love it. Love it. Dave, thanks for coming on the show today and uh, talk to you again soon. All right. Thanks for having me on the show. Even at halfway through the year, it's not too late to start tax planning for 2019 and the years ahead. Our Tax Strategy Foundation engagement is a multiple call series that walks you through the tax strategies you'll need to minimize your tax bills. At the end of the series, we'll give you a tax strategy blueprint that summarizes each strategy and what actions you'll need to take to implement them. And if you need assistance throughout the year, our team is there to help you every step of the way. There's no need to pay more taxes than necessary. Head over to therealestatecpa.com and fill out the form on the Become a Client page to get started today. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.